0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, episode 811 for Monday, April 20th, 2020. And welcome to the Mac Observers, Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We take all that stuff, we answer your questions, we share your tips, we share some of our own tips, we share some of our own cool stuff found. The goal being that each and every one of us learns at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include expressvpn.com/mgg, mailroute.net/mgg, and mac.cashfly.com. We'll talk about all those URLs in a little bit. For now, as usual, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton, and here in Fairfield, Connecticut, with my coffee, this is Jonathan Braun. Coffee is good. For some of us, coffee's—I—I I don't. No, it's yeah. no bueno for me. I don't care for the taste of it, and also it's got caffeine in it, which is uh, not my best friend. So there you go.
1: Yeah, what I found is you may want to try. A lot of people say that the darker coffee has more caffeine, but Correct. I think the opposite is true: is that medium or light blend actually? So maybe maybe try a not some, something not so dark maybe like taste better
0: mm, i think the scientists disagree with you in terms of no, caffeine okay. content um i think what you said first is right that the darker stuff tends to have more caffeine it doesn't matter coffee light dark in the middle too much caffeine for me uh, yep, yep. it further reduces my tolerance for humanity is what i like to say <laughs> so i uh and i and nobody needs that right now so Let's go and help humanity and uh, and share some quick tips, shall we? Uh, Kate mm-hmm. starts us off today and Kate says, uh, I thought I'd share this quick tip. I haven't used the iOS Apple Mail app for a while, but I revisited it again recently. Did you know that your swipe options are for the the same for the messages list, like the ones that you use in the messages list to swipe back and forth? They're the same uh if you're in an individual message, you can swipe the entirety of the message left or right to get those like archive and trash and reply and all of that stuff. She says I swipe left to delete, but if I'm viewing a specific message, I can swipe the screen left and see the same option to delete, et cetera so yeah, wow i um I don't know that i if I knew that I have forgotten it so thank you kate that's a that's a handy one. I like it pretty good, huh, John?
1: Yeah, I think I knew that yeah. There you go. But I haven't, haven't said anything about it. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's always useful to swipe on everything and see what happens.
0: Well, that's, and that's the beauty of the quick tip, right? Is that it's, um, it's those things that are obvious to us once we're doing them, but not necessarily obvious to others. So mm-hmm. yeah, pretty good. Thanks, Kate. All right. And Craig has a tip slash cool stuff found. We've got a couple of cool stuff's found stuff, stuff's stuff's found to talk about. Um, uh, He says, uh, for anyone who has Parallels Toolbox installed, one of the included tools is uninstall apps. It's really great for those apps you might try out but decide not to keep. As you know, when you install an app, there are often lots of associated files that get installed in various places like the library that are orphaned. If you just delete the app out of the applications folder, Uh, they become cruft, they gradually clog things up, etc., some apps come with their own uninstallers, but when you run the Parallels Toolbox app uninstaller, it shows you all the associated files in addition to the app that you want to uninstall and where they're located. Of course, he says if you decide to proceed with the proceed with the uninstallation, it deletes all the hidden associated files that can really add up over time. Very cool. Thank you for that, Craig. Cool. I uh, I, Parallels Toolbox is one of those things, John. Um, that's it's a handy. Uh, it's a handy thing to have around. So I always forget about that one. So that's good. Yeah,
1: I haven't been using it. As far as uninstalling, I found that um, App Cleaner yep. is good at getting rid of the, that's what I use to get rid of the additional cruft. Uh, it's pretty smart about all the stuff buried in the system other than the app itself. So. Well,
0: That's good. That's good, man. Cool. Cool, cool. All right. Well, we put links to all of that in the show notes that you'll find at macgeekgab.com, of course. Um, and you can get them emailed to you every week at uh, also at macgeekgab.com. Just put in your email address. Then you don't have to remember to go there. So, uh, you know, I have the, the, my next addition submission to Cool Stuff Found is an app. It's Sound Source 4 from Rogue Amoeba. Anybody that pays attention to. Sort of the behind the scenes of how we make this show happen knows that we use a lot of Rogue Amoeba apps, uh, specifically Audio Hijack and Loopback, to really kind of tie the whole audio workflow together to make this show work. In fact, it's Audio Hijack that records the uh, the file that you hear that you download in the feed, uh, and so their apps definitely are for audio geeks in that sense. However, SoundSource 4, especially version 4, is an app that I think everybody would love. I, I, they're, they're sponsors of, of the website last week. And so, therefore, I dug back into SoundSource because that was the app that they had us. And it was like, oh, my gosh, why have I stopped using this? They're not sponsors of the podcast, but I like it's cool stuff. So I found it. So I'm telling you about it. But that's why I found it. Uh, SoundSource used to be, years ago... Uh, when I first used it, it was an app that let you pick your sound devices from the menu bar. Right uh, now, Apple years ago, in fact, Apple added that to Mac OS, essentially Sherlocking what SoundSource was doing. Well, they've revamped it now so it can do lots more. Of course, you can do that. But now what SoundSource lets you do is you can pick which audio device is going to get the audio from any given app. Right. So if you want music to always come out your nice speakers, but when you're on like a Zoom call, you want that to go to your headphones, you can route things so that you don't have to mess with your sound preferences every time you launch an app it just knows or if you you know like you do your hangouts or you know video calls or whatever on one monitor and your that monitor has a speaker in it you could route the audio to that so that you get like some spatial awareness or whatever and of course you can do eq on your audio and if you want to add some compression and like things like that you can get geeky with it but john one of my favorite features and uh the thing that really like pushed it over the top for me is i use an external audio device i know a lot of people do like sometimes you use it with you know like hdmi or whatever and when you do that the audio buttons on your keyboard don't work anymore because it's not your internal audio sound source makes your volume buttons work for external audio devices like hdmi or you know third-party usb or you know whatever which is pretty cool so anyway go check it out they actually because they were sponsors of tml this week they gave us a coupon for 20% off so i'll put the link and everything in the show notes but that's my uh that's my software addition to cool stuff found cool huh mm-hmm. cool i have a hardware edition john uh it's anchors power core 10k wireless it's a as you might imagine a battery pack that is wireless it's got but it's super thin it's like you know thinner probably thinner than my iphone maybe about the same thickness as my iphone uh, it's a little smaller than an iPhone 11 Pro, uh, and it's got a cheap hat in it and a 10,000 milliamp hour uh, battery in there. So you charge it up. you're Good to go. It's got three ports on it, a, uh, a USB-C port that is for input only, charging only, uh, charging the battery only, and then two USB-A ports that you can get. Um, 12 watts out of uh, total if you want. So it's pretty cool. I, it, you know, it's a nice, it feels good in your hands too. So I highly, uh, highly recommend checking it out. So there you go. That's what I got. Did you have a cool stuff found for us this week, John? I think you
1: did, right? Yes, I did, Dave. So I finally with all this extra time, I finally decided to uh, test out a device that I got a while ago and it's the Eufy Video Doorbell Oh. wired also, also from Anchor, battery powered one right yes that's their uh, brand or ufi security is the uh, sub brand here sure I guess this is what it and that's the name of the app that I have to run to uh to do it uh the reason I was kind of nervous in uh, hooking it up is that they're like uh, part of the the installation process well you got a short to uh you know two two uh screws in in your existing doorbell you gotta mm. short them together and i'm like ah, I, don't, I don't know if i'm really happy about that <laughs> um so i found the transformer in in the house that handles the doorbell there was only one of two um and then installed it um now because it does it, it disables your existing doorbell it still uses the wiring for power of course but um i guess the they don't have enough power to power your existing doorbell. So what they do is they give you an external one that uh, huh. pairs with it. Uh, so that's kind of nice. So I actually have multiple uh, sounds. They have, you know, holiday rings and, you know, like seven that's or eight different cool. rings and then you can set the volume. So that's a good way to solve that problem. Um, here's what I like about it. So like other doorbells, um, you know if somebody rings the bell, you'll get a notification on your device, which which is nice. But the one thing that I really like about this is that um some other doorbells that I've used so I'm in uh, I'm close to the street and in a high traffic area, and that's a bad environment for a lot of cameras is they it, in that they just I found some of them uh, just aren't able to figure it out and they, sure. they give a lot of false positives. This one though has features that I think get around that. So one, it has what they call AI, is that they'll identify things um, as what they think it is. So for example, when a person comes up to it, it'll say, oh, this is a human. And and you'll get a notification that a human is nearby. So that's really neat. Um, I did have to fine tune it though, but the level of detail that they do in this is really cool. So you know, I set it for human. And it started getting humans and there's a sensitivity. What it was doing though, is, is it was identifying, uh, it was funny, it, it was very consistent. It was identifying the wheels of cars driving by as a human because it thought it looked like a face. And I'm like, ah, oh, no, no, no. But here's the nice thing about theirs. They have both an inclusion zone and an exclusion zone. So I basically set it up so, so that when it found a wheel It was always in the same spot, so I made that an exclusion zone, so it would ignore those. And then expanded the active zone, and uh, so far it's been very uh, uh, reliable in that uh, respect. That's pretty cool, Um, man. Huh. Yeah. um, It has a nice image. It's a 2K image. Um, Okay. uh, Here's the other nice thing. It has local storage. Uh, some other products you have to pay to get your video from the cloud, right? This stores it locally. It has, I think four gigabytes of local memory and, um, you can download the videos from it and then, you know, send them to whoever you want or archive them or whatever. So,
0: um, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I'm looking at it. I'm wondering, I know the, um, like the UV cam, uh, we'll do the Yuffie Cam 2, especially. We'll do HomeKit. I'm wondering if this doorbell also does HomeKit. Do you know? I know you don't I have th- any other HomeKit devices, so you it may, like, well, it may not have shown up.
1: You know, I actually found that I do, Dave. Okay. So when I was walking around trying to see if the doorbell. Was it identified my Airport Express as a home kit device.
0: That makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All
1: of a sudden it popped up and it said, hey, I found another one because it's an AirPlay uh, destination. So my Apple TV and my. Sure. Um, Airport Express are now part of the home environment, but that that's it. But,
0: but I no home I kit heard, on, the, on the doorbell is what they're saying.
1: Um, I thought there was talk or was it the device you have? There was talk about a beta firmware that could
0: enable it. So uh, on the Eufy cam, it's HomeKit compatible out of the box with the current firmware. Mm -hmm. And then with the beta firmware, it adds HomeKit secure video, which takes your video from any compatible camera and lets you save it to iCloud and share it that way and manage it via your secure Mm -hmm. iCloud storage. So, uh, yeah, the camera will do HomeKit secure video, but it'll also just do normal HomeKit video. Like a lot of other cameras will. So there's two levels of HomeKit video. It gets very confusing. Uh, most cameras don't yet support the HomeKit secure video, but obviously some do. And I've got the beta firmware on my Eufy cam. You can just ask support for it and they'll do it for you. It's not um, It's not because we're special people or anything. We just asked and, yeah. and they gave it to us. Yeah, but they give it to you too. So, yeah.
1: yeah. The only minor downside is that it does not integrate with my smart home, smart things hub. Whereas other devices do.
0: So, so, I yeah. OK, I have a little detour here because, you know, it's like we're, we're spending quarantine time. So it's like, all right, what what could I do with like with my, you know, some of this extra time that I'm forced to be at home? And one of my problems is my in my garage of the office building here, which is where the studio is, I have. Uh, many times we'll leave the lights on in the garage and then I'll see him when I'm going to bed, which is across the driveway from the house. And I'll be like, ah, eh, they're LEDs. I'll just leave them on mm-hmm. overnight, you know, because I don't want to like go put on clothes or whatever and go out and, you know, turn off the things, especially if it's cold or raining or even just whatever. if It's late. So but I started thinking, I'm like, wait a minute. I have all the technology because now I put one of those Eufy cams in my garage. So that and it's motion sensitive, which is great because that's where you have people leave packages and stuff. So it's good. Um, but it's also just a thing. And it's fun because I'm a geek. And and so that works out fine. And I thought, you know, I have a bunch of these wise bulbs that uh, are smart bulbs and I could replace the the bulbs in my garage with those. And then I could set up a smart home trigger that says anytime there's motion on the Eufy cam, uh, turn on the the lights in the garage And then 10 minutes after there's no more motion, turn the lights off and then I would never have to mess with the lights again. They would just they would do their thing. And I do that with several other things. Like I have my I've got a ring uh, driveway thing that that works with all my smart home stuff. Right. My ring camera, uh, security camera. But the Eufy camera does not link with any of the same things that I can get any of my bulbs or anything to work with. It's like mm-hmm. it doesn't work with the A lady. I don't think it works with the G lady. It does work with uh HomeKit, but not in a way that I can link all of it together with the motion sensing. So it's like crap. It's like I'm one step away from being able to tie all this together. I feel like I just need to get to punt and get a, a switch in the in the garage that has a motion sensor in in it, but um, mm. but I don't know. So if you have any thoughts, John, I'm open, and if anybody else has any thoughts, feedback at maciekab.com. So you know, I'm pretty sure I heard you right in that you said feedback at maciekab.com. I did say feedback at maciekab.com, and I would love to. I, I don't know it's just like yeah i gotta i gotta find a way yeah because it, it won't work with the smart things it won't work with the a lady It won't work with the g lady it won't like i can't get everything to talk to the same thing and there isn't a wise plug-in for Homebridge yet so it's mm, so it's ugh. i spent like an afternoon like oh i could do it this way no can't do that oh wait 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 i can like you know my son and i went back and forth on it anyway
1: yeah yeah. You remind me, yeah. I actually have another project kind of related to that. Yeah. Is that I have some outdoor lights that I installed myself like decades ago. Yeah. Uh, Heathkit, I think, or Zenith, they are. Um, sure. I think over time, what happened is the sensor is a bit too sensitive because, you know, it's supposed to be, I guess, thermal. Um, but it comes on way too often when there is nothing there or it's like the wind blowing or something. So I may look for. I'll start exploring alternatives to uh, outdoor motion sensors. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I need is I just need a motion sensor. But, you know, it's like I feel like I have all the pieces. I have a motion sensor. It just won't talk to the thing I want it to talk with. So, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody, PJ, in the chat room at live.macgeekab.com is suggesting maybe to use Home Assistant at home-assistant.io. So, we, I know we've talked about Home Assistant before, so we'll... Um, We'll put that in the show notes, too. That'll remind me to dig in and maybe, maybe, maybe we'll see. All right. Uh, We've got, where are we on time here? Uh, You know what I want to do, John, is I want to talk about our first two sponsors, if that's okay by you. Of course. All right. All right. You know, being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about Internet privacy on your own home network, right? You can just fire up incognito mode, private browsing mode. Nobody can see what you're doing, right? Well, not so much because even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Like anybody that has access to your router can see it. Anybody that has access to certainly your ISP, you know, your cable company or whoever that is, they may not be able to see what you're doing, but they can see where you're going and all of that good stuff. And that's why it's really still smart to be using a VPN like ExpressVPN, which is our next sponsor here, right? Because ExpressVPN makes sure that your ISP can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your Internet connection is yours and is rerouted privately through ExpressVPN secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared amongst thousands of users, which means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. Plus, of course, ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with their best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. You can use the Internet with confidence from your computer, your iPad, your iPhone, to your Android phone, doesn't matter. ExpressVPN works on all of it. And they've got you covered on every device. You tap one button and connect. That's why we love it so much here. It's so easy to use. You just install it and then you press the button and you're done. Like it's connected. You're done. So you can protect your online activity today with the VPN that we use here and trust to secure our privacy. Our special link it expressvpn.com slash MGG is where you want to go so that you can get an extra three months free on a one year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot slash MGG expressvpn.com slash MGG and our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode. Look. You're probably spending a lot more time dealing with email these days. In fact, you're probably sending more email. You're probably receiving more email. And that's why you want to make sure that you're using MailRoot. Because MailRoot at MailRoot.net slash MGG, our next sponsor here, helps you stop email threats like spam, viruses, phishing, malware, and even downtime. MailRoot is the filter That you send all your email through. You don't have to change mail hosts, you don't change servers or anything like that. They are a filter that sits in the middle, and quite frankly, for a while now, they've been sitting in the middle between you and us. It's right. We're using MailRoot on our MacGeekGab.com domain, and it's been fantastic. Filters out all the spam, all the viruses, all the phishing, all the malware. And what's cool is we get all the control because we can go through all of our mail logs and we can see what the blacklists are blocking with every other mail provider I've ever used. I never get to see what the blacklists are blocking. They block, but I have no idea, no visibility with mail I get 100 percent visibility and I can even say, oh, I know that that was blocked by a blacklist. Great. But. Unblock it and send me the email. I want the mail. It's outstanding. They really know what they're doing. I mean, this company was started by uh, uh, this guy, Tom, who worked, you know, with ARPANET early, early on and then went on to build a distributed network. And guess what? Started having spam issues with his free email that he was given out. So he started writing mail filtering rules in 1997 to help his clients. And now Mailroot, you can see the how it connects. You got to check it out. Go to mailroot.net slash mgg, dot net slash mgg. And as always, our thanks to Mailroot for sponsoring this episode. All right, John. Uh, let's go to Jed here. Jed's got, uh, well, he's got a question for us that I think we might be able to answer if I can find Jed's audio. How come I... Oh, there's Jed's audio. That's why I couldn't find it. Let's
2: see what Jed has to say. Hey, guys. uh, This is Jed. I hope you are all staying as healthy and as safe and sane as possible. Uh, And like many people, I have a remote working question. Uh, Mine might be a little unique, but it might not be. So I'm working at home. Fine. I have Zoom for... uh, I'm using Zoom I'm not sure it's the smartest for video sharing, but it actually works really well. And uh, I'm also using some remote desktop stuff. Uh, actually, I like Chrome Remote Desktop. I think it's pretty good. Um, but anyways, I'm also I also have a huge amount of big files because I'm doing video editing. So currently, to keep in sync, I make a daily folder. I drop it into a media transfer folder in Dropbox. I then have a hazel action on the other side that copies that folder or moves, excuse me, moves that folder into the, my boss's hard drive. So she has a copy of everything um, and vice versa. And that's fine. It works okay. Um, some of the, some of these folders end up being hundreds of gigs. Hmm. So my hard disk gets a little full pretty quick. Yep. Now I'm trying to think if there was a better way, like, would it be better to, set up a VPN and tunnel between the two? Is there any way to mount a her hard drive or my hard drive remotely and just copy it that way and use like a sync, like a carbon copy cloner? Um, almost, I was thinking, do I set up my computer as an FTP, as unsecure as FTPs are? I was just trying to think if there was a better way yeah. to do what I'm doing. Huh. Right now what I have works. It's, uh, it's pretty intensive. It takes a lot of uh, manual labor to make sure I don't forget something or to keep things in sync or, you know, sure. To make sure I don't fill up my hard drive space, to be honest. Um, and so I was wondering if you guys had maybe a better solution that I'm not thinking of. Um, I think the ideal would be actually to be able to mount each other's hard drives remotely. Um, whether that's like using WebDAV or something. But I don't know. I'm hoping you guys have some genius idea that I'm not thinking of. Okay. Stay well. Bye. Thanks, Chad.
0: I'm not convinced it'll be genius, but I have an idea. Um, So honestly, what you're currently doing with Dropbox is a pretty good solution here. Because it deals with the inconsistencies of syncing data across the WAN, right, across the Internet, because it's it's not trivial. You need to make sure that the data is in sync, especially with a huge data set. Like there's going to be times where the data on your end is not the same as the data on your boss's end. And that is a problem. Right. And you're not alone here, Jed. We've had other people asking similar questions like, how do I keep You know, especially now that we're all distributed, how do we keep this stuff in sync? Um, I would not advise starting with mounting each other's hard drives Uh, again across the Internet. That starts to get a little weird because you don't have anything managing that syncing process. Now, you could, I suppose, use something like chrono sync with mounting. But honestly, you're adding too much complexity to the, the setup and too many points of failure, right? You, you want to you have a single point of failure. Uh, and the thing that comes to mind to me, John, is Resilio Sync, R-E-S-I-L-I-O. It used to be called BitTorrent Sync, but they changed the name because people were equating BitTorrent with like, oh, it's only used for like a piracy and file sharing. And it's like, well, no, it's that they're using the same technology that was used for that peer-to-peer sort of distributed thing. And you can now create your own peer to peer uh, network where files are shared. But you're using the reliability of that that protocol, that that BitTorrent protocol that's serverless. So you don't need to set up a server. You certainly could. You could like buy a Synology and set up, you know, Cloud Station and set up your own effectively your own Dropbox kind of thing and control it. And that would work. And if you've got that that's another great way to go, but obviously there's an expense to setting that up both cost, but you know, financial and time. Right. So I think Resilio sync is going to do it for you. And there's two versions of Resilio sync. We'll put links to both in the show notes. There's the individual and business for what you're doing. You might even be able to get away with the individual one, which happens to be free. The business one isn't terribly expensive, but um, that's my thought on this, John. What do you think?
1: Um, yeah, off the top of my head, I like the the Dropbox solution. Yeah, um, yeah. A couple of others that uh, occurred to me though. So one, you and I just tried it the other day. Uh, would be the iCloud Drive shared folder. Yep.
0: Yep. Yeah. So that
1: would be you know a place where you both, assuming you have the space.
0: Right. Um, right. And that's the beauty of Resilio is there is no server to buy space on. You just need the space on your local drive. So like you need to sort of manage that. Uh, and she needs to know to move things out of that folder once it gets there. But Resilio sync, or like you said, Dropbox or iCloud, I mean, they all could, could accomplish this for sure. Yeah. 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 Um,
1: another one that occurs to me. So, uh, it, there was a suggestion to, you know, allow one to log into the Synology. Yeah. Um, I, I would take a different angle on that. So I don't know if you want to create. A, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm pretty sure, Dave, you can use Synology Drive to do this. Yes. So you would allocate space and then you would give your boss the Synology
0: Drive client. And when they write. Yeah, that's what People I meant. I said work. Cloud Station. I meant Synology Drive. They changed the name oh. of it a couple of years ago. You're totally right, though. Yeah. Yes. Synology Drive is it. And I, I will add to that for one of the other businesses we use. Synology Office, uh, which is part of Synology Drive. So you get the syncing part, yes. right? And then Synology Office is like uh, Google Docs and Google Sheets and Google Presentation and all that stuff, but you're hosting it yourself. It works flawlessly. Well, as flawlessly as, you know, my, I'm, I'm hosting it here. So as flawlessly as my internet connection, of course. But, you know, we can have multiple people in the same document editing at the same time and, And it's private. Google has no idea what that business does. And that's great. You know, it's like, so it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, Synology. Yeah. They've got, they've got some good stuff there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. It's Synology drive, not cloud station. I got to get that out of my, my part of my problem is that I'm running, I'm running Synology drive, but I've been running it so long that on two of my Macs. The sync folder that I use is called cloud station. So I think of it as cloud station because I don't want to change all my folders and pointers and everything. I know it's not that big of a deal, but it's just let me be me. It's okay. It's okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, While we're on the subject of Zoom, Jed mentioned Zoom. It's the only sort of tangentially related thing we had, uh, but certainly working remotely, uh, we had Israel right in. Uh, and Israel says, as a musician, uh, it, Israel actually wrote this into my Gig Gab podcast for musicians. But the answer is very much for all of us here at Mac Uh He says, as a musician who's worked in broadcasting most of my career, oh, I, I, I've I've quite a, I've become quite a bit of a hobbyist, and have professional experience with things like Wirecast, OBS, ManyCam, and all of that stuff. Uh, but I have a question related to Zoom. He says. Any clues on why zoom deactivated support for virtual cameras and if they're going to re enable it in the near future, that was a nice setup for interactive, well-produced online classes and events, which is something that Israel is doing now. And number two, have you experimented and or have any thoughts about yellow duck or other similar tools to manage Instagram live streamings from a streaming software like OBS or Mimo live or something like that. So, uh, to quickly answer number two, as I said, we've been doing uh, live video streaming. In fact, if you go to the MacGeekab YouTube channel, which is MacGeekab Podcast at YouTube, uh, you can see this. You can see it on Facebook. And as of today, we've, we're using Yellow Duck because Israel suggested it to stream to Instagram, which also seems to be working. So, yes, in fact, the answer now, time shifted, is we are. Um, as far as Zoom, yeah, they um, it's interesting. There's a piece of software called CamTwist That's an excellent example here um, because Cam Twist lets you uh, create a virtual camera on your Mac and then you can pump things into that either from a real camera or you could. Like stream a quick time video into it or you you create whatever you want and like pipe that in as though it were a camera connected via USB. And the nice part about that is then you can choose that virtual camera as your camera in Google Hangouts, Zoom up until recently uh you know it, what microsoft live or whatever it is like all all of those you know you got to pick a camera from somewhere especially if you have multiple cameras on your mac and that makes uh it it's great cam twist has been awesome it's been around for years 2 weeks ago or something zoom pushed out an update that somehow disabled support for virtual cameras john i don't know how they did it they probably Put a blacklist in the software that said if the camera has this identifier, do not treat it as a camera, because I don't know how else they would trick that, you know, but um, but it means that you can't use Cam Twist in uh, in Zoom anymore, which stinks. Hmm. So, yeah, I know. I know. And I don't have an answer for that. I don't It like the the answer. We'll put a um. we'll put a link to the Reddit thread that sort of talks about this. The answer is to go and like grab an old copy of Zoom, but that's not going to last for very long. And um, as we've seen, Zoom's uh, security underpinnings are not the most stable foundation. So at times you kind of want the newer versions of Zoom to make sure that you get the security patches that they and other folks have found. So, yeah. Yeah. So any thoughts on that, Mr. John Braun F Braun to you and me? Mm, not today okay all right on the uh sticking with the thread of uh working remotely and tying in the synology thing david has a question uh he says um recently i got to thinking i have a synology disk station." That we store our client files on. Uh, I've got a couple of staff working from home, so I recently set up remote access on it by adding web dev servers on the external access control panel of Synology. Okay. Uh, he says, I don't have a specific physical firewall, but our Netgear Nighthawk AC2300 router says that it has double firewall protection SPI and NAT, NAT and SPI. Uh, he says, we do use password managers with strong, unique passwords on everything for everything at the company. OK, that's good. He says, do you think that our server is relatively safe from attack? I've been trying to research, but I can't get very far. I obviously am not asking for any research on your part. Yeah, but that's what we do. We're happy to do that. Uh, he says, but I hope that maybe one of you had some experience with this type of setup. Yes, of course. Um, so the firewall on your router uh, provide what it, it provides. Against more generic attacks, not specific ones. Right. An SPI firewall makes sure that only packets replying to things that you have created are sent through. That's a basic definition. I I don't think it's incorrect. It's but you could go deeper. So I'm sure somebody's yelling at me about it. Um, But. Um, having your disk station exposed to the outside world by way of like port forwarding, like you've done here so that people can get directly to your disk station, disk station with a web dab um, is essentially creating a hole in your firewall that lets anyone in the outside talk to your disk station. So at that moment, it's up to your disk station to provide all of its security. Right. And you can do some things and I'll tell you about a couple, uh, but I think I know where you're going to wind up. So, now, uh, if you go into the Disk Station Manager, go to Control Panel, Security Account, make sure to enable Auto Block because what that does is it, if people uh, try to log in and fail more than X number of times in Y number minutes, well, boom, it blocks that IP address for either forever or for a day or something. So that would be a good thing to turn on. Uh, in the uh, same area, but instead of Account, go to the Firewall section. You can tweak your Disk Station's firewall. Uh, which can be helpful, but isn't exactly straightforward. It's a little bit wonky. You, it's, it's a very manual process. And you need to think a lot more about your network than you probably wanted to. So the, all of that would work and you could secure things. But the best thing, though, would be to disable the port forwarding. So make it so people on the outside cannot get to your disk station. I know, John, it sounds like crazy talk. But yeah, then set up a VPN. And set up a VPN directly to your Synology. So we're not talking about a VPN like ExpressVPN, which is to get from your network outside. This is a VPN to let people get in. And by setting up a VPN, the the only thing people get to see is your VPN server. And then once they have the, the only thing the general public gets to see is your VPN server and then only after someone properly authenticates with your VPN server, do they have access to all of the things as though they're on the inside of your network. So that's we always say that, you know, you use a VPN so that you can tunnel out of the network that you're on. Well, in this case, if you're actually setting it up to, to have people tunnel in and. Synology's VPN software is great for this and would work exactly for what you want. I think that's the most secure way to do it, because that way you're not having to think about, oh, what holes do I need to plug in the firewall for this next service? And that only that one person needs it. But now I need to open it up to the entire world. No, just the VPN and then have everybody. in. And then once they're in, then it's like they're basically like they're sitting on your local network. So um, and that's in on Synology, go to package Center. Uh, all packages, and it's called VPN server, and you can kind of go from there. What do you think about that, John? Am I crazy? Wait, don't answer that question. Do you like my answer?
1: Uh, that is something that I often do when I want to access my Synology from the outside world. Though, is I'll run the oh. OpenVPN client and then, you know, punch in the, uh, typically I have to punch in the IP address of whatever I want to reach. sure. You know. But no, that's, that's a, yeah, VPN, I think, is a good solution because as you pointed out, it eliminates the port forwarding. If you do want to do the port forwarding, one thing I could throw into the mix here, and actually uh, Synology has some sort of security inspector that'll yell at you about this, but you don't have to put services on the port that um, it's normally defined for. Like one thing that they tell you to do, I think... Uh, what is it? SSH is on what? Twenty two normally. Yes. Uh, put if, if you're going to do the port forwarding, um, most uh, most servers and clients have flexibility to operate on ports other than the ones that are traditionally used. So that may be another way to kind of throw people off the trail. Because uh, yeah. A, a, a lot of these guys that are looking to break in, they're going to hit, you know, the commonly used ports on whoever they find. And if you put it on a different port, they may miss you. So
0: I like that. Yeah, yeah. Security by obscurity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Cool. I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Anything more on that, John?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Kiwigram's right here. Yeah, the external port to be different, not the internal. But uh, you, you can do that map. Uh, typically, you can do that mapping if you're going to do the the port forwarding. Right. Yeah. So set the external. But yeah, to keep the internal one and then it won't be fighting with your uh, with all your other stuff, uh, the services. Yeah. yeah. Makes good okay. sense.
0: Yep. I like that. Yeah. Yep. So thank you, Kiwi Graham, in our chat room. Great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, John, Apple released a new iPhone this week, the new iPhone SE 2020. And I just kind of I went through it because I was like, huh. Okay, I was a huge fan, what, four years ago of the first iPhone SE. It was my daily driver because I liked the size. I liked the battery life. I liked everything about it. Um, so this new iPhone SE is not the same size as the first iPhone SE, right? That was the size of an iPhone 5 in in an otherwise iPhone 6 world. So this is now the, it's the size that the iPhone 8 used to be. The iPhone 8 is, I think, deprecated now. It's off the product line, right? And this is like based what based on what I can tell, it is exactly the same size as the iPhone eight cases should fit. As I think, uh, but it's you know same dimensions, all of that. Except it's got uh, the iPhone 11's A thirteen Bionic processor in it, right? So you get way more pro like you get the the same processing power that those of us with an iPhone eleven or iPhone eleven Pro have. All good. You get dual SIM capabilities with a nano SIM and an e-SIM. So one of each, which is super handy. Um, no more 3d touch that's gone on all the iPhones now. So at least they've standardized that, which thank goodness, because that that was a mess um, haptic touch. Now what you don't get from the iPhone 11 is you don't get the extra camera stuff. It's still the same camera you would have had with the iPhone eight. So no night mode, uh, it does have Wi-Fi 6 like the iPhone 11 does. Um, and you can order it and it will be here, I think, what, Friday the, the 24th is when they, uh, when they start to pump out. So it's interesting. It's still, got the, it's still a team home button, right, if you, if you want that. But, of course, that means you're missing, like, you're not getting a full screen display. You, you're missing the, the, you know, you get the bars at the top and the bottom. But, and it's cheap. It's like starts at like 399 bucks. Which is great, for
1: yeah. Right now, and um, and it's also Team Touch ID, which uh,
0: well, that's why I said Team Home Button, yeah, yeah. yeah so, you, but you're right; that does mean Team Touch ID, yeah. That's right, yeah. So,
1: yeah, I'm considering it, and I think the other thing is that I think they offer, I think when I got the eight, they either offered maybe they, I I seem to recall they either offered uh 64 gigs or 256, and I got the 256. I don't think they offered a a 128 but uh, when i looked at the iphone at the at the the new one yes um, it looks like they offered three different um so i may get it and yeah it's it's uh, i mean yeah the 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 price is is way less the oh, only yeah. thing that makes me sad dave is you know i looked around uh, you know either through apple or verizon or you know gazelle or whatever and the phone the iphone 8 that i paid a thousand bucks for they'll toss me one fifty or so. i right. will probably get more if I put it on eBay or oh, something, but you, you'll
0: it, always get more if you put it on eBay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: yeah it just makes me sad that, you, you know, I mean, you think a car goes down in value once you drive it off the lot. It's, <laughs> it's like, I mean, once you, once you buy your iPhone, it's like, I mean, you know, it's, it's like 10% of what I paid for it. It's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, you're right. So I may get you're it right. just for the, uh, the upgraded features. Um, cool. and, you know all of my accessories will still work because it's uh, from what i can see it's the same you know 4.7 inch screen and it is I yeah i would assume is the same size so yeah
0: it's not the liquid retina it's it's just the regular retina display i mean mm-hmm. same resolution same pixel depth not same resolution mm-hmm. same pixel depth as the iphone's 11 um and 11 pro but mm-hmm. not um but not the not the same Uh, Not the same brightness or something. I don't know. There's there's some there's some differences there. But but yeah, three ninety nine for a sixty four four forty nine for a one twenty eight, which is great. And then five forty nine for a two fifty six. So, yeah, that it it's a good price. I mean, it it would have been nice if they could have gotten the whole line off of touch I.D., uh, if they could have no, done. No. Yeah, no, they need. No, like, I they, love touch ID uh, only because to you haven't it. used <laughs> face ID. No, really. Like it, like I, I I, firm until you've used face ID. Uh, you I, like I, 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 I caution you to have an opinion about it. Right. Like because everyone that I have seen with that same resistance, like, oh, I like touch ID. Well, of course, mm-hmm. we're humans. We're change resistant. It's normal. Um, but. Everyone that I know that has like made the leap, it's taken Mm -hmm. two days or less for them to say, "Okay, well, this is way better. It's like, yeah, it's way better. (laughs) I mean, I've tried
1: it. You know, I've I've tried it on demo units in the Apple store. I know you've tried it, it it, but you
0: haven't lived it. It it is different when it's your own phone. Mm -hmm. So I, I like it is a shame to me that and I get it it's a cost thing right like the the face ID adds a ton of hardware to make that work so Mm -hmm. I I get it and it would require a larger screen which is going to cost more and all of that stuff so like I get why the budget phone doesn't have face ID yet but it Mm -hmm. will the next rev of the iPhone SE will definitely have face ID it it would just be nice to kind of get rid of the touch button from the the, from touch ID I think that I think they should offer both how about offering both Well, where would they put the button?
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: No, right. I mean, there are some, there is some tech that, that is doing like fingerprint recognition through a glass sensor. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, or like some of those, um, those douji phones I have, have the touch ID sensor on the back. So you you know you you just hold it in the sort of your natural way and then and some Samsung mm-hmm. phones I mean it's not just Duchi there's a lot of Android. phones I have that tried do it. that
1: yeah yeah I have tried that on the Samsung phones yeah. where it's not capacitive it's image based I guess.
0: Um yeah the front one is image based on the Samsung phones but the back one is capacitive I think just like the touch ID sensor uh, at least right. the ones I've tried maybe maybe the maybe there are some that are image okay. Based,
1: so. The only other thing is I, I I don't know if you mentioned it but I think. The camera—I don't know if it's either the the CCD. I don't. I thought it was a higher resolution uh, camera, or they they added some features, but not you, mm-hmm. as you pointed out the the stuff on the eleven.
0: I don't know that they did. I thought when I went and looked at the specs side by side, I didn't see mm-hmm. anything different about the camera in the SE versus the iPhone eight. I thought it was the same camera array like 12 megapixel on the back oh okay Uh, i think um you know but but i I, uh, yeah if you know if you know differently please let us know obviously yeah yeah so
1: no i'll check their their tool yeah they have a a tool online where you can put it side by side with what you got
0: now yeah right that's right so much better yeah 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 yeah. that's right all right Yeah. yeah cool um I uh I have had the pleasure as I've mentioned of checking out the new MacBook Air, the the 2020 version of the MacBook air. and mm-hmm. I this is like I, I look my computer is my, my MacBook Air is what barely a year old, right? I got it when it came out in December of 2018 or whatever. Um, this update to the MacBook Air is awesome and the main part of what makes it awesome, is the magic keyboard. Like that keyboard is so delicious. And I know you know this, John, because you've got that magic keyboard on your uh on your n- new MacBook Pro, the, the, the 16-inch. Mm-hmm. So I, it really makes a difference. And I've had the keyboard replaced on my uh on my MacBook Air, on my 2018 MacBook Air. So it is the essentially the 2019 MacBook Air keyboard, which is a remarkable improvement over what it was originally. But it's still not there, Uh, you know, like it's nothing compared to this magic keyboard. Really, really great. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for an air, the cool part is, in addition to the keyboard, they've added CPU options to the air again. So you're not just stuck with the one dual core i5 that the you know that I got with my air, which has been fine. To be perfectly honest, you can now get a dual core i3, a quad core i5. Or the quad core i7, the one that Apple sent me is a quad core i5. So it's the middle of the road one, 10th gen and processor, you know, all of that good stuff. And I'll tell you, it makes a difference. Uh, It's got hyper threading, which i5s didn't used to have like that was reserved only for the i7s. But now it's got hyper threading. In the i5s, which I think started with Intel eighth gen, I want to say, but it anyway. This particular CPU has it, regardless of when it started, and it makes a difference. Uh, You know, there's many times when I see, especially as the as the machine is like starting up, where it'll be using all of the all eight threads, which is really really nice. Battery life's great on it. The keyboard, the keyboard is the obviously the most. Notable thing from a physical standpoint on on this update to the air, but it's not often that I have, you know, a little bit of FOMO um, of a machine so quickly after getting one of my own that was, you know, brand new, like to the product line when I got it. But with this keyboard, it definitely uh, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Who in the family needs a MacBook Air to pass mine down to so that I can go and get the new one? But um, maybe I'll save that for when we're traveling more again. And, and it actually, you know, although I uh, these days I'm using the air on the couch a lot. So, huh. I don't know. I highly recommend it. If you're like this is the computer for most people, um, I would lean towards the. The i5 processor, just to get the quad cores and give yourself um, more, you know, headroom, more uh, useful service life down the road. The i3 would be fine, but, uh, you know, for the longevity of it for you, I would go for the for the um, for the the quad core i5. I I obviously haven't tested the i7 yet. That adds another, I think, 40 percent to the speed. So if I was going to buy one for me. Yeah, I'd probably get the i7 because that's just you know how I go. But uh, I think the i5 is the right the right blend for most people. And again, this review unit has eight gigs of RAM. I bought mine with sixteen because I was nervous, and no difference whatsoever. I I really can't see a useful difference in that extra eight gigs. So obviously, if you've got the money, it will not hurt you to have sixteen gigs of RAM but if you need to choose where to spend it i'd spend it on the processor 8 gigs is going to be enough so it's good any questions mm. thoughts on that john before we move on
1: 8 is enough is what you're saying
0: that's what i that was the title of the episode when i said that for the first time back over the summer i think when i when i tested that macbook pro i do i said 8 is enough yeah it's good
1: yeah well I, I like 16, I,
0: but I'm with okay. you. But if yeah. you
1: say eight is enough, that's good.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. No, like I said, I, I bought mine with 16 um, because Ram was the thing that that sort of stopped my old air from being useful. But um, right. it was, you know, but it was it was a psychological insurance policy. And there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. I just but I knew it going in. I'm like, I probably don't need this. And it's been proven to me several times since. um This has been the computer I've been using for the last three weeks or whatever. And it like it's totally fine with eight. And that actually now that I think about it, I've been messing around and using logic a whole lot more. You know, logic pro 10, the Apple's, you know, professional recording studio software and eight gigs of RAM has been more than enough running a ton of plugins in logic and doing all kinds of things. So uh, I didn't even think about that until we were just talking about it now. So, yeah. All right. Shall we move on back to questions, John? Sure, sure. All right. Let's go to listener Mark, who asks, uh, Mark says, oh, where can I find this? Uh, oh, after uh, I recently nuked and paved my drive, but after many Google searches, I cannot make the two Mac HD icons on my desktop show in consolidate into just one. What did I do? And so Mark sent us a picture of his desktop, and he has Mac HD and then Mac HD data. Aha! Thankfully, Mark also sent us a picture of disk utility, and the internal drive is listed as having three volumes Mac HD, Mac HD data, and Mac HD data. Okay. So a nuke and pave in the old days was that we would go into disk utility, you know, presumably boot from recovery mode or a USB stick, right? Go into disk utility, wipe out the, you know, erase the old partition and then reinstall the OS onto that partition, create a new one, perhaps. Uh, you know, I that's what I would do is just erase like in his case, he calls it Mac HD. So great. Erase Mac HD, recreate Mac HD it is a new volume, install onto that. You know, you're good to go. With Catalina, we live in a different world because with Catalina, there is a container that has Mac HD in his case and Mac HD data because the system volume Mac HD is in most cases mounted read only And then your data volume is mounted read write. The finder does a fantastic job using uh, firm links to marry these two into one visible volume. But that misleads us when we go into disk utility to nuke and pave because we don't think about the second volume that we are actively using. So what I think happened is Mark did exactly what we would used to do. And that is go into disk utility, wipe out Mac HD, create a new Mac HD and install Catalina onto it. And when you install Catalina onto a a volume, it bifurcates it and you have two volumes left. Mac HD as your system volume and then Mac HD data as your data volume. Unfortunately, Mark also has his old Mac HD data volume. So the trick would be to figure out which one of these is the one that Mark needs to delete. You can do it one of two ways, I think Uh, the first way and is probably not the best way. But one way is to go in disk utility, go to the view menu, go to show all devices that might show two different containers, one containing two volumes, one containing just one. If that's the case, then you know which Mac HD data to delete a safer way, even if you're going to wind up doing it that way is to go into the Finder and rename Mac HD temporarily. Rename it to something like New Mac HD, because that will change the name of both volumes, because the Finder smart like that. Then you can go into Disk Utility, and you will definitely see which one is the old Mac HD data, because it'll be the only one named that now. So that's how I would go about this, John. What do you think?
1: Um. I'm with you know. I think this happened one time when I migrated to uh, Catalina, and that I saw the same thing. as I had three volumes. Yeah. And the way that I determined the one that was the uh, the bad one was I checked the size of them. And so the system uh-huh. one was big, one of my data ones was large, and then the other one uh, was left over from something. Sure, I think it it, it should have gotten rid. But but the, there was another one that was like very small and i'm yeah. like okay that's probably the one i don't need anymore and so you know throwing caution to the wind i deleted that one yeah and everything was fine but yeah it's a uh, yeah it was unsettling though because i'm like I, I shouldn't see two of this
0: right yeah exactly yeah great all yeah right. cool yeah that would uh that would do it that would do it all right uh let's see uh we have what do we have here oh We can go to uh, we've got a couple of like hardware E kind of things to uh, to discuss. And we'll start with listener John and listener John says my iMac seems to be having some random intermittent problems, both of which occurred today in close succession, but have happened occasionally before, particularly in the last several months. Today, I was using Safari when I got a spinning beach ball, which then froze and eventually got a black screen with the message about the computer restarting. After the restart, my Bluetooth keyboard worked long enough for me to log in, but my mouse never worked. And then I lost the keyboard, too. I restarted by holding down the power button and now everything is working properly. Any ideas? So, you know, we get a lot of emails like this and I figured this would be a great one to uh kind of highlight in the show here, because these are those things that if it doesn't come back, don't know Um, off the top of my heads. I have no thoughts other than reset the SMC, maybe. Right. Which might have happened in a sense with his power down thing. I mean, that's not how it's supposed to work. But there are other things that reset the SMC other than on that machine. It would be unplug the power for 15 seconds plug the power back in, wait five more seconds and then power it up. So uh, that would certainly be a thing to do. And it's not a bad thing to do on a regular, not, I mean, you don't want to do it daily, but a couple of times a year, it's not a bad thing to do anyway. Uh, maybe running a system diagnostic, Apple's system diagnostic, John. I don't know. What do you think? Um,
1: I'll give you a thought on that sure. uh, in the next question. Okay. Fair. <laughs> um. Pers- personally, I've found apple's diagnostics to be i've never had it identify a problem and actually in the past i've had it actually identify a problem that didn't exist and they had a tech note on it right it was like hey there's something wrong with your sata port and i'm like what yeah and i found a apple article and they're like oh yeah if you get this message it's not real it's like well why generate it i don't know yeah right (laughs) but yeah i haven't had a lot of luck with with their diagnostics. And that leads us, I think. Yeah. Right. Ian to, uh, all right. Ian's got one that digs a little deeper here. So Ian says, hi guys. Hope you're keeping well with the craziness. Yeah, we're trying. Um, I'm having a, but this is therapy right now. So right. This is what we do. (laughs) That's right. Uh, I'm having frequent kernel panics on a 13 inch MacBook pro 2018. A panic report is below. They are all similar. I'm always a bit confused when trying to decipher these reports. Do you know if CPU4 caller 0xf whatever refers to a memory location that the CPU is trying to access unsuccessfully? I've tried updating to 10.15.4 from 10.15.1. Apple's hardware test says everything is fine. Doesn't it always say that? Yeah, to my point earlier.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was
1: thinking if running remember... Uh, at kellycomputing.net slash r-e-m-b-e-r. Do you think Safe Boot is best to run this so that the maximum amount of RAM is free to be tested? Uh, thanks for your help. All right, here's my thoughts. Um, so yes, the, the panic reports, Dave, often look to be filled with incomprehensible gibberish unless you're a developer. And even if you are a and developer. even like then, you, right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but based on past experience, I can offer some help. Um, so first off, yeah, the address that he saw, yes, that's a memory location. Um, but I think it's the address of the routine that caused the exception because they list it again farther down in something they call a backtrace, which is like the history. Um, but that's not going to do you any good. Okay. Uh, unless maybe uh, you want to be a developer and run run in debug mode. My experience is that if you run um, something in debug mode, the nah, never mind. Uh, okay. <clears throat> I don't know what I'm talking about with this Xcode. So I'll try it and get back to you. Okay. But um, <clears throat> that may help a developer, that, that address. Um, but here's the only data in that report, Dave, that I found uh, useful, is that they'll say kernel extensions in backtrace. Um, and they'll show last loaded kx and last unloaded kx if anything, Dave, I found that these can give you a hint as to what piece of hardware is causing your grief. Now there were a few in there that caught my eye, Dave. One was com.apple.driver.AppleSMC. Speaking of SMC, oh, okay. So maybe you want to reset your SMC because <laughs> I, I I don't recall ever seeing that in that list. Yeah, um, that's an interesting um, one, huh? Then he saw some. Uh, then I saw some other ones, Dave um usb.io usb host hid device which hid is human interface device which is typically your input devices Yep. and you uh, uh, exclamation point U audio 322.2 i don't know if that number means anything to you um but that sounds like an audio device so i don't know if you got an external audio device or maybe it's a, a system audio device that U- had it upset
0: universal audio is a uh is a company that makes like super high end audio devices that I've been (sighs) sort of drooling over, but I don't know if that's, it looks like this may not be related to universal audio based on some Google searches I'm seeing now. Uh, This, I think this is a thing that's on everybody's computer, not, not just on, you know, the computers of the people I envy. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, this looks like, yeah, this looks like a, a thing. So, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So if you have a U-Audio device, uh, maybe you get a new driver or something like that. I don't
0: know. No, I don't yeah, think this saying, is universal know. audio. I think okay. this is. Okay. Yeah, I don't know, though. What is that kex? That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's showing so up in a So that lot may be them. a
1: direction to look. Um, as for diagnostics, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. You may want to get one that's a bit finer grained. Um, and I'll suggest a few here. So, one. Our friends at Micromat have something called MacCheck that kind of breaks out the diagnostics into it. If anything, uh, at least it shows you the individual parts of the system that it's uh, checking out. So that may help focus uh, your efforts. Um, Of course, Micromat also has uh, much more thorough diagnostics in their Tool Pro. I think they're on version 12.
0: Tool Pro 12, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: Yeah. So MacCheck is free. Um, TechTool Pro 12, and then the other tool they have is called Atomic. That's a memory tester as well. Uh, you may want to look to those. But you know, you might as well check. Uh,
0: remember, it's it's um, called Remember R E M B E R Rember. Remember. It, it's a GUI front end to the venerable but time tested MemTest utility, as far as I can tell. Okay. So yeah. All right.
1: And I actually checked it out. Um, The thing is, it has an all option. So I, and if anything, I think if you run in safe mode, um, that may actually not help you isolate the problem because one thing that safe mode does, and I quote from their thing about safe mode, system extensions not required by Mac OS are not loaded. Mm. So if
0: it is a third party thing, it's not going to catch it in safe mode. Sure, sure. But that would be a way to rule it out too. If you're seeing the error, you know, not in safe mode, then that that means, right? right? I mean, it's a, it, a treating it, mm-hmm. it, being aware of the troubleshooting that's actually happening is the key there. So, yeah, I like that. Yes, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I got. That's what you got. All right, cool. Uh, let's go to Bob. Uh, no, there's a couple of different Bobs that asked a couple of different questions. So this Bob says, while we're on the diagnosing scenario here, I'm using a mid 2010 21 inch iMac and have the following problem: when I try to use the Apple menu bar and click on the Apple dropdown, uh, it gives me a restart option, but when I click it. The computer goes black, the mouse pointer appears, but then stops. It will not finish rebooting. I've also tried to use the keyboard shortcut of control and command in the eject key. Same result. Screen goes black, mouse pointer appears, then it stops. And he sent us a diagnostic log, which is fine. We're happy to take a look at these. Um, You know, to see if there's anything in there, as John, you said, sometimes yes, and sometimes mostly times uh, no, but there might be those little sort of flags that show up. So uh, these are he- helpful. And he says, also, I've lost my ability to enter a finder slash spotlight search. I've tried the fix listed on Apple's site, and I'm not exactly sure which fix he meant, but it didn't work. He says, I'm running Albert app and the find command gives me the results that I need, but I can't search Spotlight, can't search mail. Any ideas that you have? Okay, so as far as the first problem, John, I did dig in to his diagnostic log and I saw something Mm -hmm. where um, it was hanging or talking about a drive that is for him named my Seagate two terabyte. So I, I, we, and we've seen this before, right? Where connecting, ejecting a drive, especially an external drive can hold up the entire restart process. So I would eject that drive first and truly get it ejected. Maybe even unplug it. Once it's formally ejected from the finder, make sure it's not doing anything with your Mac then try to shut down. And if that doesn't work, try other peripherals, right? Try and get it down to the bare bones that you can and see if this is truly a problem with your Mac, like software, or maybe even hardware wise shutting down, or if it's related to one of those things you have plugged in. Now, in theory, a drive shouldn't stop this. And that would be something to dig into. Maybe there's, maybe the drive needs to be, uh, you need to run, um, whatchamacallit, like a disc first aid on it or whatever. So that's possible. uh, but that's where I would head with with this kind of thing. And, you know, whenever we get these problems in, it's sort of impossible to know because we're not right there. But that's sort of how we approach them is we look and we say, all right, if we were there knowing what you've told us, what's the next thing or maybe next three things? If there are if there is a plan that we would choose to do. And so that's where we are with that. As far as the spotlight thing, following that same mindset. um, What I would try next is running Onyx and letting it clear the spotlight index from the maintenance menu there. Uh, And if then you still only have a problem, if that fixes spotlight, but you still have a problem with mail, have spotlight delete the mail envelope index Uh, that will cause mail to rebuild its indices the next time you relaunch it. So it'll take a little while. uh, So it's not something you want to do trivially, but that can help uh, solve that stuff, too. That's, that's, again, that's what I would do if I were there. So, thoughts on that, Mr. Braun?
1: Um, yeah, actually, the, uh, for the first one, Dave, another thing you may want to try mm. is, it sounds like it's getting stuck somewhere uh, in the reboot process. Yeah. I believe if you go, if you if you put the computer in verbose mode, not only when you start the machine up, will you see lots of text about all the stuff that's happening, and this is actually a good way to debug startup problems um in that typically you'll see a line of text saying yeah here, here's where i am and and yeah well you can see the lack of progress i believe that also happens when you shut down as it'll show a trace uh so that may help you zero in
0: um yeah for in sure addition to that log that's a great idea um yeah 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 if the problem yeah. is happening when it kicks in that's the key right it because it's not it, it doesn't it doesn't go to verbose mode the moment you hit restart, but it does go there pretty shortly thereafter. So yeah, you're right. That that would be yeah for sure, for sure.
1: And then from our chat room, I, I like this one. Uh, Blockhead s <laughs> eighty uh, eight has a comment here saying, uh, "iMac twenty seven inch twenty fifteen Fusion Drive causes panics." Okay, uh, that that could be another place to look maybe. Yeah. If you have a fusion drive, um, yeah, maybe unfusion it. I don't know, but it could be one of the drives in the array is bad. Sure. Sure. And that, that could also cause panics. Yep.
0: All right. Yep. I like it. I like it. All right. Uh, we have one more in these hardware ish kind of things. And that comes from Rory. Rory says on my 27 inch, 13 inch MacBook pro, uh, the last couple of weeks when running on battery, it will suddenly and without warning, go blank. There's no the no battery symbol will then appear on the screen when I try to turn it on. So the Mac thinks the battery is dead, but it is sub, subsequently happened. Uh, he says when I plug it into the charger, it will uh, have some charge on the battery. Uh, The first time I did it, 25 percent, it was immediately showed that it had 25 percent the next time, 90 percent, the next time, 73 percent, 22 percent. So all over the map, the Mac doesn't think the battery is dead. He says, I've tried to reset the SMC. Uh, He says this works, but only very briefly. It will boot normally, sometimes where I left off, sometimes going through the whole boot procedure. But the thing keeps happening He says my battery in system information or whatever we call that now. Is that what it is? System information? Yeah. System information uh, says that the condition of the battery is normal with a cycle count of only 307. Um, It says that uh, it is not fully charged to fight despite the bar showing 100%. So it's saying that it's at 2274 out of 3823 in terms of milliamp hours on the battery. Okay. So I've seen this before. And it's not the best news, but it might be your battery isn't really one battery. Usually it's multiple cells stitched together with both hardware and some like controller running software to sort of present it as one battery to your system. And then it sort of manages it as a subsystem itself. It sounds like one or maybe more, but not all of the cells in your battery have simply gone bad. I've seen this. I've had it happen to me in exactly the same thing. You know, you'll be at what 23% and then boom, it's dead. And you start it back up and it's back at 23%. You're like, what happened? It's like, well, that cell that it was about to go and use doesn't actually have a charge, even though the cell is saying I have a charge. Um, You know, you're smart to do the SMC and all of that. Sometimes that will fix this, but, in your case, it sounds like it's going to be hardware and you need to replace the battery. It's a 2017, so it's possible you're still under warranty. If you've got Apple Care, I would get a call into Apple ASAP. Uh, the other piece of good news is that some battery problems, as we've seen, uh, are covered longer than you would have had Apple Care and outside of any other warranties or expired warranties. So Apple may well take advantage. Uh, you may be able to take advantage of one of those programs with Apple because they may just replace it for you out as a safety concern or something like that. So call Apple right away when when your battery, especially if your battery is if you're having recurring, you know, unexpected battery shutdowns. Uh, right. You think so, John?
1: Um, I'm looking here. What machine? It's a 2017
0: oh, okay. uh, MacBook Pro 13 inch. Oh, Um, okay. No, they don't have a
1: program. They don't seem to. It's not How a do public I know, program. Maybe, no, no, I, I think they do. Okay. Um, yes, but say you want to learn about public programs, Dave. Yeah. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? You go to support.apple.com slash exchange underscore repair. I uh-huh. only found out about this recently. They do have a list of valid programs. I, I did a quick scan and couldn't see this but i do see some for various machines uh and batteries
0: okay so. all right well we will uh we will put a link in for that but there are some non-public programs for lack of a better term mm-hmm. that that they don't publish on this page but are very much known to most technicians so you definitely want to ask about that so yeah cool thanks john uh, all right. I want to take a minute here and talk about our next sponsor, John, if that works for you, my friend. Fantastic. All right. All right. You know, we've been fans of and users of Cashfly for years. In fact, you've all been users of Cashfly too, because they're the ones that provide the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Well, Cashfly does other things. In fact, Cashfly has your back. Because with their new web optimization capabilities, all of your content will be optimized before it's delivered to your website's visitors without requiring any development effort from you. That's because of Cashfly's new flexible edge application platform and all of their implementation services. Their capabilities now reach far beyond those of just a traditional CDN. And this allows Cashfly's web content optimization to Have powerful APIs for solving content distribution problems, on-the-fly next-gen image optimization, application load balancing, smart asset delivery. That's kind of like what we do here with Mac Gab. And if your website's tied to your revenue, this stuff matters. The good news is the folks at CashFly are going to provide you with a free optimization consultation just because you're a Mac Gab listener. Yes, that's right. Just for you. So go to mac.cashfly.com, M A C.C A C H E F L Y.com to get that free optimization. Check out what's going on, learn about it. Our thanks to Cashfly for providing all the bandwidth to get this show from us to you and for doing what they do and sponsoring the episode. All right. I think we got a couple of questions. We got time. Well, I know we have a couple of questions. I think we've got time for uh, for a few things here. You know what? Let's let's go and uh, let's revisit a couple of uh, follow ups from past episodes. John, we'll start with JP here and uh, and we'll take it from there.
3: Uh, fellers, it's uh, JP uh, with a uh, a comment listening to the current Episode And we're talking about bit rot and what would you do to a hard drive to uh, if you can't data scrub it with your Synology and it's just something you want to keep in motion every once in a while. I, I have this very scenario in my archiving life with all of my uh, film and video production. Uh, my archival system is uh, three and a half inch hard drives uh, in HUD cases like books on a shelf. And I have a drive dock from uh, OWC, hmm. which uh, allows you to just take the raw drive out, drop it in a slot and uh, and mount it and do stuff with it. And that's how I archive stuff. Uh, but here's what I do, and I've found it to be very effective to keep the disks working uh, properly over the years. Um, I just went through this uh, during the pandemic because it was a great time to, to do this, but. I do about a, uh, I do a full copy from one drive to a fresh drive every three years, three to five years. And uh, I went in there uh, this past couple of weeks and I found an old archive that I had uh, sitting on the shelf and the drive itself, which I date uh, when I purchase, sometimes they don't have the date on the label. Sure. Uh, the date was 2013 and the thing was still mounting and working, but I was not going to take chances with that at all so uh, I copied uh, yeah I copy I buy uh, raw drives from OWC Uh, you can now buy larger drives and fit more things onto them now and uh, every three to five years I will will do a a full complete carbon copy clone over to a new fresh drive I will erase the old one and I will throw it away and that is what I was told long ago in order to, you know, keep your data secure, yeah, and the spindles spinning and all that stuff. Anyway, that's the way I do it. So far, it's been working for me, uh, but I'm going to investigate the data scrubbing on my Synology. I had no idea that it uh, could do that. I'm going to look into the control panel when I get home. Thanks for everything. Yeah, here's where you cut me off.
0: Yeah, of course, JP. Thanks for that. That's yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking as you were saying this, I mean, there's obviously some cost involved with JP's plan here. Right, John, because you're buying a new drive every three years, which is for a business is the right period of time to sort of end of life your drives that, you know. They, they're very reliable uh, in general for three years. And then after that, you don't know. Right. So I get why he's doing this. You know, he's got his business running and he he needs that data to, to remain. I, but as I was hearing this, I was thinking, you know, over time, would it be cheaper to get, say, a, a Synology or, you know, something like that and just archive everything on there and then replace drives as they fail? Right. Because if you've got some fault tolerance in your Synology, you can afford to sort of, you know, push things out a little bit and not, you know, adhere to a strict three year policy. Synology keeps the drive spinning, as we mentioned and he mentioned, you know, there's data scrubbing where it can go through and check everything on a regular basis. So, you know, that the data is there on your drives and you're not having bit rot I, and and the cost of, a you know, a multi base Synology unit or for him a multi-bay expansion you know, chassis uh, to his existing Synology in time would probably be less than he's spending on drives, especially if he can get five years out of a drive instead of three if he knows that he's got that fault tolerance. I don't know. It's just like, you know, his plan's not bad. I just wonder if there's a more economical and perhaps even safer plan. So thanks, JP. It's good, it's good to cogitate upon. I like it. Mm-hmm. Shall we go to Jeff? Because... If you don't have a Synology, you can, as Jeff points out, uh, you can use Carbon Copy Cloner to do data scrubbing in a way. Um, He says uh, Carbon Copy Cloner has a parity check mode that does full file comparisons. Uh, He says, I used to schedule this monthly at my last workplace to make sure that we weren't uh, suffering from bit rot. So there you go. If you've got a, a drive mounted you can use Carbon Copy Cloner's Parity Check mode to uh, to to check and make sure everything is is out there. I like that. I hadn't thought about using that that way. That's pretty good, huh? John?
1: I've actually enabled this, and actually, it it's kind of mis uh, it's not named Parity Check mode though. Okay, I'm looking here, and I got this right. There's a checkbox when you define your your job and. Uh, the the name the term you should look for is find and replace corrupted files. Oh, and I think what it's doing there is it's doing it's doing a full, it's comparing. Yeah, what's on the drive you're backing up to the backup. And, right, uh, and then there's a pull down here because yeah, obviously that takes a lot of time because it's basically tearing through all of the content on what yeah. you're backing up. I have it set to once a week. So, uh, but yeah, you could also, so I guess he set it to monthly and felt that that was uh, sufficient. So the good news is it'll do it. The bad news is it takes a lot of time. So you may want to do it. You may not want to do it every time you do a CCC backup.
0: I like it. Yeah. When you turn it on, it says carbon copy cloner normally uses file size and modification date to determine whether a file should be copied. While uncommon, it is possible for a file on the destination to become corrupt, And this would not be noticed until you attempt to restore the item. This feature, the find and replace corrupted files option, causes carbon copy cloner to reread every file on the source and destination, calculate a checksum, then use that checksum to determine if each file should be copied. We recommend using this option on weekly or monthly backups. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. I like it. Smart. But yeah, I like that you can do that on your daily clone, just not uh, daily, which is smart. Mm -hmm. Mike Mike and the folks at Bombic there they they know what uh they know what's up they know what they're doing <laughs> i mean clearly you know all right uh yeah we oh we heard we talked in the last episode about uh modifying exif data john and you mentioned um a better finder rename uh, in in the episode, right? Because it was one of those things that would let you see EXIF data. Well, Frank from PublicSpace.net, I think is. I mean, that's the website where all this is. Frank writes this, uh, and he says, uh, "Thanks for the mention of a Better Finder rename, but it has a companion product called a Better Finder Attributes that allow you." to. It allows you to change EXIF timestamps and some EXIF metadata as well. And so we will put a link to this. So it's a it's a follow up and a cool stuff found. I like it. It's pretty good. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for thanks for making the software too. By the way, that's awesome. So that's pretty good. I had no idea. I didn't know about a better Finder attributes, and I really had no idea that it would do EXIF data. So pretty good, right, John? Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. Uh, two more. I think we've got we can we'll get through these quick Uh, Bob writes and we were talking about uh, the last in the last episode we were talking about using app tamer to uh, to reel in processes that were running away and and uh, and it's great for that. He says uh, it reminded me that uh, at work, the company Max have to by policy have McAfee installed, he says, and. Many of us are already using AppTamer to keep McAfee from triggering two to three minute spinning beach balls. He says we have verified that if we remove McAfee and leave everything else the same, we get no beach balls. But of course, no one can keep McAfee off their company. Max, as the enterprise management software either complains or just reinstalls it. So Activity Monitor never seems to be able to pin the beach balls on McAfee. My theory, he says, is that the problem is in the McAfee kernel extension. And I think the McAfee kernel extension is hooking into all the storage IO and network IO scanning that uh, all the buffers or whatever it's looking for. And he said, so uh, Tamer comes into play to fix all this. And he says, if you CPU throttle tasks such as Spotlight, Time Machine, McAfee Disc Scans, of course, Crash Plan, which is their company-provided backup. He says basically any app that has high CPU load when a beach ball even occurs, throttle it, and you can eventually reduce the spinning beach balls or eliminate them. So that's pretty good. I like using AppTamer to uh, circumvent that. Uh, it's non-optimal, of course, Bob, but, you know, that's, that's how we go. So thanks for sharing that. Anything on that, John, or you want to uh, take us quickly through Michael? Michael, Michael,
1: oh, there's Michael
0: okay. yeah well follow up to our our you need to have a jdk installed discussion in the last episode, so how did you find it
1: um uh he actually did some digging for us, so oh. first let me get the, let me get it up in front of me here where is it? oh my gosh, Dave, I don't see it all right
0: I will oh no, here it is no okay. I got it I got it all right. All right.
1: All right, so uh, Michael did a little digging for us here, which is uh which is great, and he actually found the entry I think in a system log hmm really um yeah, so I was looking at it, so oh and I don't have full content here, but I think I have enough so yeah. we looked at so he found um Something that was referring to a file and where where was the file. Um so it identified a cron D job called com.apple.java.install dot demand. Oh. All right. Which um and that actually suggests that yes, this is part of Apple's Java installation from sure. years past. And that actually maps Dave to an app. In system library Java support core deploy contents download java I'm going to say that that's probably what's running I and bringing this thing that. up to you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I got to remember this the next time I use my neighbor's computer and help him fix this. This mm-hmm. is good. Okay. Huh.
1: Now here's the only problem, Dave, is that um, it seems that so. Through the Finder, though, if you navigate to this in the Finder, if you try to get rid of it, or, or I looked in a similar area, you get a circle with a slash through it saying, nope, I'm not going to let you do it. So you can't delete this through the Finder, as far as I can see. I
0: wonder if it's on the uh, read-only system volume. I wonder if that's the that's, reason.
1: Well, it's in slash system, so yes. Yeah, it would make <laughs> sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's on that. So what may work is if you go into the terminal and go to this and do a pseudo space rm. I wonder if that has enough mojo to get rid of it.
0: Or it, did you, you say, may, sorry, have, sorry, did you say you went into single user mode to do that or would recommend? Because that's to me, like n- single user mode would be the only way. <sighs> To, because otherwise, the system volume you can use sudo, you know, rem nine kill whatever you want. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not gonna like it's not gonna mount the the volume as read write. Like there's no scenario where that's gonna be the case. But I wonder if in single user mode you can. This this is an experiment we need to do because this this would be a thing, right? Like this is one of those deals. So mm-hmm. yeah. Hmm. Now, you may uh, another thing.
1: So you pointed out that it's part of um, the system volume, which I believe is protected by
0: system integrity protection. Well, oh. e- e- yes, but more so now. Right. In Catalina, it's just mm. a separate volume and it's read only. So right. that, like system. Yes, you're right. It is still protected by system integrity protection. But then also you can't write to it.
1: Okay. All right, because so I was thinking another thing you could do, um, this actually came up when I was having that weird mail plugin thing, yeah. is, I wonder if you go into recovery, go to the terminal and typing csrutil space disable, disable system integrity protection. Right. So I don't know if that would get you a little farther along. Right, maybe. The final thing is what I would, yeah, the final thing is that you may not be able to delete this file. Um, well, <laughs> uh, unless you follow like Dave's suggestion. Um, The other thing I would think would be a more elegant way would be to just get rid of that uh, launch D job. Oh, is it a Um, launch D or a cron job? uh, I think it's, I think it was launch D that was listed in the log that I was looking at. Yep. And how do you deal with those things, Dave? Our good pal Lingon. So you should be able to see the job or search and find, you know, this uh, component or this app using Lingon and then just get rid of the job because it sounds like you really don't need it
0: (laughs) no no i i I would agree with not needing it for sure yeah 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 all right yeah 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 i love lingon Um, i you know we mentioned it last week and that reminded me i had not enabled its notifications on my imac in the office the new one and i miss those like having it tell me when things are changed in my launch d scenario like that's a I find that a valuable little notification. I don't like many notifications about that kind of stuff, but those I kind of like, cause they're not all that frequent when they come up. It's like, Hey, wait a minute. What's messing with that. That's good to know. So, yeah, cool. All right, John. Well, uh, as we, uh, as we often say, my friend, all good things must, uh, must come to an end. And, and that is true about this too. The good news is we have a lot of questions already. Like we could do another episode right now. And the difference is we're not gonna. And between now and the next time we do one, you folks are going to send in a ton more questions. So we love it. It keeps things going. Keeps, it gives us all a thing to kind of dive into and learn from. And, you know, it's good. So that's what I got, John. It's good uh we told you how to contact us so that's good we thanked cashfly because they're a sponsor of this episode as part of our deal with them so that's good we thanked our other sponsors of course so mac.cashfly.com as we mentioned and expressvpn.com mgg and mailroot.net mgg check all of those out uh do you have anything to add before we uh before we slip out of here for this week john
1: um. Well, another thing that was uh, one of the tips we got through uh, Twitter, yeah. and uh, if you want to do the Twitters, uh, Dave and I, and well, everybody's on Twitter. Well, almost everybody. Um, I'm John F. Ron. He's Dave Hamilton. The podcast is Mac Geekab. The publication is Mac Observer. And there's also that Pilot Pete guy, which I know. Uh, he's probably not doing a lot of piloting these
0: days. Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> FedEx is moving a lot of things around the country, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't you talked to him in getting... a little while. Yeah. He might be busy. Yeah. You know? Hopefully he's staying safe. It's good. Hopefully you're all staying safe and healthy and productive enough to remain sane. Because that's good. Uh, It's a shame that uh, we heard this week that Max stock won't be happening this year. Understandably, Um, it will be pushed off till next year and will be bigger than it's ever been longer even better uh but that reminded me of a nice moment we had last year at max stock where everyone helped share our um our favorite words of advice take it away folks
2: don't get caught
3: it's good